0: Radical incarnation, listening, and forgiveness. These are elements that Carl Rashke insists would help a theology that's in support of our faith, our faith in Jesus. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Path the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have a friend, Carl Raschke, to join me. I met Carl 13 or 14 years ago in a small uh, conference. We might call it a boutique conference. That is, it was not one of those large uh, Coliseum-styled events. Instead, it was a small conversational one. And it was there I heard Carl speak for the first time. And since then, I've read a number of books, as well as getting to spend some time with a fellow Oklahoman, at his place down in the south part of the state. So I hope that you will uh, find our conversation helpful and hope-filled as we look at some of the current uh, controversies or points of division along the way that center on uh, ideas like critical theory or critical race theory or intersectionality or, as, as he presents it, another one that's on the horizon, decoloniality. I hope that you won't be put off by those descriptions, because if you've been paying attention in Twitter land, or in the Twitterverse as they say it, you will see that at least in my denomination, this has become quite the rage that causes division. I wanted Carl to talk about those things as someone who had and has engaged philosophical ideas, well, for the last 45 years. So I hope you find this helpful and encouraging. If you have any questions, you have any comments, uh, please uh, leave them in the uh, comment section on this blog post, or you can email me at doc.tod at gmail.com. We could carry on a conversation there. It's been a a little while since my last podcast with John Frankie, but I'm trying to get back on track. And as always, your sharing the podcast helps. It helps us uh, expand opportunities for folks to listen to what what, frankly, I think are important conversations for me. And I just intend in to, to share them, particularly with pastors and faith leaders who are aware and alert to some of the ongoing conversations and ideas that are having great influence. In public discourse as well as in church discourse. So, I'll have a note for you of what's coming on the other side. For now, here's my conversation with Carl Raschke. Today on the podcast, I'm I'm happy to have uh, a friend uh, in Carl Raschke. Uh, some of you who listen may not be familiar with Carl. Carl is a, a professor of philosophy of religion at the University of Denver he is also in charge of the MA program and those are the things he's doing at the later stages of his academic career he's been a philosopher for 45 years and uh, was gracious enough to entertain me uh, some years ago at, at his place uh, and we had we had a great time i've enjoyed a number of his books challenged by his tweets and um, had an opportunity picked up a, a recent book that that I had not seen before reached out, and uh, that was our initial attempt to to talk today. So, Carl, I'm glad to have you uh, on the podcast today.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you so much, Todd. Yeah, Carl, you um,
0: you, you know,
1: might to each other fellow Oklahomans too. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yes, fellow Oklahomans. That's right. That's right. Good, good. Yes. Um, Folks, if, if you have not read um, anything by Carl, I'm going to apologize to you. You should have. Um, one of the things that attracted me uh, was uh, the way that Carl could help uh, a pastor think through some of the ongoing um, or the developing philosophical ideas that were uh, presenting themselves in public discourse, and particularly, for instance, uh, all those years ago when Postmodernism became uh, the bogeyman for everything that's uh, going to go wrong with the world. And Carl tried to help uh, evangelicals understand uh, what was going on in that frame. And and so in a book he wrote in 2004, uh, I I found a small paragraph uh, that I wanted to kind of use as our introduction today. Uh, and then we're going to have a ranging conversation, and hopefully you'll learn something that will be helpful in the throes of an environment where it seems like we just uh, grab onto a idea that's presented, an ideology that's in, the, in, the, uh, in public discourse, and then go to town trying to outdo one another, either in favor of or against. So. Um, This little paragraph started this way. When I introduced the expression, the end of theology in the philosophical and religious discourse years ago, the intent was not only to cause a stir. It was to provoke the sort of thought about the character of thought and language that postmodern philosophy during that interval has overwhelmingly and astutely introduced. The aim was to point out that one does need theology necessarily to support faith. The modern assumption has always been that faith needs a powerful protector. Yet, as always happens with feudal arrangements, the provisions for protection become methods of domination and suppression. So, so Carl, when, when we are here, you know, not quite 20 years after that was penned, we still seem to have the same sort of tendencies to grab onto an idea and most of the time without any sort of recognition of what it means or what it entails and then use it to club one another. Um, What's a, what's a better way. What's a, what's a, what's a more helpful way that someone who's been in academic circles could help pastors uh, take some steps to be a little bit more aware and not be drawn into uh, those sort of battles that really are not productive.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's not as easy as even I have thought, you know, in the past. And of course, uh, when I wrote the next reformation, that came about because I gave a talk at the um, Evangelical Theological Society in Colorado Springs it was actually in the fall of 2001. And I had been working uh, with a Mergent Evangelical Seminary in Seattle at that time. Uh, it's called the Seattle School for uh, Theology and Psychology, and now it's not what it was called then, uh, as well as some local churches and people that I knew, particularly in the Texas and Oklahoma area, you know, try to understand postmodernism because there was a phrase that was kind of being circulated, you know, what I, I guess I'd call in the, conversational channels of, of pastors at that time. This was really before we had the internet, but let, let alone social media. And that was postmodern Christian Christianity. And that was just kind of a general term for, you know, essentially these sort of formal innovations are go on the nature of worship, dress codes in churches, kind of what you might call the cultural aspect, uh, particularly of evangelical Christianity. Uh, and, you know, But of course, I was also working, and I was one of the, uh, you know, I was the one who introduced the notion of postmodern philosophy to the academic uh, world of theology. A book that I wrote in 1979 called uh, The End of Theology. And um, the, actually, if anybody's interested, I I published a book uh, with uh, Cascade Books, but three years ago uh, called postmodern theology of biopic sort of traces that whole kind of history and, and so forth so you know i uh you know i was assuming talking to the the evangelical society evangelical theological society that they would, would really hate what i had to say and i really didn't want to do it uh a guy named um um uh, Frankie, in, uh, I think he was at Westminster at the time, invited me uh, because he was kind of a fan of some of the work, which is more technical academic work I'd done. He said, "Well, postmodernist, because you're uh, a kind of Christian evangelical and proud of the fact, and but you are also a well-known scholar in what's called poststructuralist, postmodern philosophy and theology. You know, they ought to hear that this is not incompatible with faith." I said, yeah, but they're not going to listen. So I expected to be booed off the stage. Instead, I got a standing ovation. And after that, there were two publishers, including the one I ended up going with, which was Baker. Came up to me and said, Would you write a book about this? So essentially, that book was a response to that invitation to please, 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 you know, tell us what postmodern philosophy and thought is all about. Well, that kind of started a trend. Uh, and then Baker sort of became, you know, the apostolic witness to the postmodernization of Christianity. But the, but the but then I got into some big public arguments with uh, some of the uh, I guess I guess the evangelical leadership, particularly the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, who just thought that this was horrible because they didn't read what I was saying. I was it's called the next Reformation. I was saying, look, this is just like, you know. What Luther was saying, sola scripture by faith alone, uh excuse me, by scripture alone, sola fide by faith alone, and so forth. I said you can find all the elements of the Reformation in what might be called a kind of theological postmodernism, which I'm gonna lay out to you. In other words, you know, essentially the the truth of God, the word of God, inspiration holy scripture. Well, you know, it it just got all tangled up in a lot of you know, nonsense and pushback and so forth, because, you know, nobody really wanted to read the philosophical text or even try to understand, you know, that was what was really going on here. If you're talking about, you know, kind of trendy, um, Gen X friendly forms of worship, which is what postmodern Christianity meant at the time, that's fine what happened and I'm, you know, in some ways I think I opened the Pandora's box because all of a sudden by 2005 and later there was this whole thing called the emergent Church. And they were looking to people like me and Jack Caputo who is a Catholic philosopher and theologian to sort of provide sort of intellectual guidance. I think Caputo kind of won out because he was more political than I was uh, or at least he was more, political, he was, he was anti sort of authoritarian, particularly uh, against conservative Catholicism. And that seemed to be the only issue that mattered, unfortunately, to a lot of the progressive evangelicals. It's like, was I, was I against the establishment? And you know, I was never against the establishment. and I wasn't for the establishment either. I was trying to say, look, you know, we have a Christian tradition here. We have what we call faith. And faith is always the light itself with philosophy. Uh, that's where what, what theology comes from. You know, but philosophy changes and our modes of reading scripture change, the culture changes. The whole context for understanding changes. So, um, uh, so, yeah, so I was really trying to kind of dig into the past and say, look, you know, evangelicals need to embrace postmodernity because, you know, it's not contrary to their faith commitments. It it reinforces in a more powerful and enduring and more authentic way uh, their faith stances. Uh, I don't think, unfortunately, anybody was really interested in, in that, you know, going that deep, you know, because what happened was you had a lot of conservatives who wouldn't yield, you know, that didn't read the books, didn't want to really understand what the book was about, but you say, I don't know what postmodernism is, it's bad, you know, and of course, as I talk about in the book, a lot of the conservatives were using the term postmodernism in the same way they talked in previous generation about, you know, um, uh, you know, relativism or uh, secular humanism. I mean, basically, it was the same lingo and the same Kind of negative descriptors were being, you know, applied to that. Okay, and then, but what happened was it just simply became politicized along typical, boring, you know, shallow partisan lines. You know, if you were a kind of Democrat, then you know you were an emergent church member, uh, which means that it all became about the politics of the left. You know, and people like Brian um, um, McLaren, who I knew very well, in some in some ways was kind of the leader early on of this whole Norwegian church movement. You know, he started going with sojourners and he became this kind of political activist. Later people like Doug Padgett, you know, uh, joined and just became shameless, you know, political, you know, um, um, you know uh, political partisans. And so that kind of crazy political partisanship that's been so much of our landscape kind of got superimposed on the whole discussion and, you know, the substance of it was lost and it's still lost, you know? I mean, I, I, I have just as much negative to say about the evangelical progressive left as I do to the right these days, because, you know, they've missed the whole point, you know? I mean, the gospel is not about being a Republican or Democrat. I wrote a book in 2008 titled Global Christ which was basically open the invitation to understand our global Christianity is changing the world from Africa to China to India, you know. And some people have read that book, but it's been a whole different crowd. But nobody cares because we're also obsessed with these narrow, pro-clo-political categories in America. So I mean, that's not deep. It's neither deep thinking nor it is serious deep Christianity. And we seem to be caught up in this endless, so endless kind of cycle of, of uh, you know, dumb. Uh, affirmation and recrimination. Now the same thing is happening as we talked about over critical race theory, which I think that the partisans in this debate have as little idea about what they're talking about as they did about postmodernism. So I've just kind of bowed out of this because nobody seems to want to talk about anything serious. If anybody wants to talk about something serious, you know I'm happy to engage them. But you know, everybody, everybody's hyper politicized. And it's just it's you know, it's ruining the church. I mean, there's, there's evidence now, I mean, I've read these articles that say, well, you know, uh, you've got all these nuns in America, because they're all pushing back against, uh, you know, the religious right. Well, they're also pushing back against the religious left, you know, I was, I started out my career in the 1960s, as a uh, Presbyterian uh, minister, Mount K, I was in seminary, and to be honest, I was trying to escape the draft in the Vietnam War, which I almost ended up going to anyway. Uh, but uh, in, uh, at that time, you know, I saw the same kind of thing happening to the Presbyterian Church, which was at that time what we call mainstream Protestant. But, you know, it, 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 the politicization of the Church, no matter in what form, tends to kill it. And Americans seem possible. Or the understanding of the core of Christianity without politicizing in one way or the other. Did you vote for Trump? Well, you know, you're a Christian. Did you vote for Trump? No, well, you're you're you know, anti-Christian. It's like, so what? Give me a break. You know, I mean, this is politics. This is not faith. Uh, and we've got to get beyond this, you know. But, you know, we seem to have a customer base for it for a while, you know. And um, like my friend I was telling you about in southern Oklahoma, like he is, He's refusing, you know, to go one one way or the other with It's like, let's get down basically to what the gospel is, which is about, you know, the, um, you know, the incarnation of, of God in Jesus Christ and the development of a whole new powerful relationship to God and a relationship to each other, including our enemies. It's what I, in my book, call radical relationality. You know, and if we can start talking about that, I think like what's far beyond partisan politics. But partisan politics has become a crack cocaine of the theological world, and you know you can't talk to a crack addict. You know, <laughs> but eventually you know they collapse, which is what's going to happen. And so until people want to talk about it, you know, I I just sit back. But I but I think we need to engage. And if we're gonna if we're gonna lose everything about the Christian church in America, we've got to change the discourse. It's not happening in the rest of the world. Christianity is growing, it's the most fast growing, most powerful religion in the rest of the world. But America has basically, I think, it's, we're like the prodigal son. We basically, we're in the bucket right now.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think so. And so maybe along those lines, um, when, when we now, overlay what you've described to where we are uh, in, in, a, in a discourse that's still unraveling. It's still not really uh, shaping us in any sort of, of productive sense. And we're still looking for these angles from which to, uh, you know, pair off into our separate corners. What, what, what are some ways that um, you've thought about that we could um, address the, the, the real uh, material subjects that are, are, are really at the heart of, um, I think, this issue. So, for instance, if, if critical race theory has become the next sort of thing that, that people don't know really what they're talking about, but they use it against one another, what, what are some ways to talk about the issue of race? Because it obviously is an issue. And if we're going to talk about those kinds of things without talking past one another and looking to club one another, what are some suggestions? I mean, you've said listening uh, is required, and and so what are the what are the things that you suggest? Who are the people you suggest we listen to?
1: Uh, well, first of all, when you're going to cite something, whether it's postmodernism or critical race theory, you need to read. The actual writers who talk about it, uh, and unfortunately, none of these writers, because they're mostly academic writers. I mean, this is this is the thing. This is all very kind of sophisticated academic theory that has been percolating for years, uh, just like post um, postmodernism was, or poststructuralism, which is a technical term in philosophy. You know, it's been around between forty years before you know the average everyday. Christian evangelical discovered it. The same with critical race theory; it's been around since the 70s. The founder of it is it was a guy who was a legal theorist named Derek Bell, uh, and you know basically he, as a practicing lawyer, um, in the 70s, was trying to come to terms with the fact that even with the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And even with what we might call the formal emancipation, the end of Jim Crow, uh, that the black condition in America was was not improving. In fact, in many cases, it was getting worse. You know, we always have these kind of revelations about this in America every so often. You know, the latest was the George Floyd, uh, you know, uh, killing, uh, which is which is kind of gotten all It's you know it's been a kind of mass awakening it's like oh well you know we have a structural race you know problem in america well duh we you know we, we've had it all along did it take you 40 years to realize that i mean that's what people like Huey newton was saying you know back in the 60s and 70s you know uh, and you know these theorists have been around some of the most the foremost ones like sylvia winter you know i mean she was she was being read by a very kind of narrow circle for many years and then you'd get African theorists like Achille Mbembe. Now unfortunately like in postmodernism a lot of these people write for academics uh, so and the people who try to write the best-selling books you know they have their own agendas and they don't necessarily represent the spectrum of thought. I'll give you two examples in Critical Race Theory. The two most common books are um, Robin DeAngelo's White Fragility, uh, Ibram Kendry's uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Now those two books, I would say read Kendry, because he's, he's, you know, it's it's popular, he's not citing academic theory yet. he's not delving into history, uh, but you know, he's writing both as an academic expert, as a history professor, and somebody who's kind of lived this. But remember, he didn't—he didn't come out of the hood. You know, he—he he grew up in a white middle-class, uh, you know, black bourgeois environment. He talks a lot about that. It's like how his parents didn't get it. You have to ask, you know, does he really get it in that sense? But at least, you know, he's not—you know—he's not trying to, in a sense, pull something over on us. It's a—it's a very good book to start with, but you shouldn't end there. I would say don't. Marie DeAngelo, because first of all, she's a white person. She's a corporate uh, trainer, and, you know, she's got a message that will make white people feel bad about themselves, but, you know, it has nothing to do with critical race theory. It shouldn't be considered to be uh, a kind of touchstone uh, for trying to understand this. If you want to delve into uh, the, the deeper stuff, you know, start out with the classic, which goes back to the 20th century, W. B. Du, Bo- du, Bo- du Bois, you know, his, uh, his work is excellent. It's, it's been around for a long time. You know, then, then go to people who like uh, Sylvia Winter or Shaditha Hartman. You know, who's she? I mean, the whole thing about critical race theory is that it, that it, it it's not theory per se, but it's an effort to try to, in a sense, take the experience of African Americans and look at them, uh, you know, uh, you know, in in the context of their own experience, their own their voice, let their own voices speak. And by the way, just as a disclaimer, you're asking me; I'm a white person. You know I'm not a critical race theorist. I just happen to read the literature. And uh, so don't take me as authority, please, on any of this. It's not it's not my area. I don't claim to be, but I do follow it because I think we need to understand it as it really is as it as it really is. And then you're gonna read somebody who's like my favorite writer, which is Achille and Mbembe, who's African. Uh, and uh, Mbembe, you know, is he's he's trained, he's steeped in French post-structuralism, just like Derrida, all these people, you know, but he's got this uh, acute insight, about the relationship between the African experience and the African American experience. And of course, the Caribbean, uh, Afro-Caribbean experience, which is even different, that's represented in figures like uh, um, Sylvia Winter, you know, who's didn't, never really published, uh, uh, you know, a book, you know, that just kind of puts them all together. One of the problems is if you really want to understand this stuff, you just can't look for the book that tells it all. all. Right. You know, that's what they kind of asked me to do in the next reformation when it came to postmodernism. And I tried, but you know, it's like, I mean, you're asking to distill of 50 years and thousands, if not tens of thousands of pages of complicated, often divergent academic discourse into one little kind of simple formula. And people say, I want the formula, you know, I want the means, you know, so I can say, I understand it. Well, no, if you want to understand it, you've got to make the effort. You know, if you want, you know, if you want to, you know, build muscle in your body, you got to go to the gym on a regular basis, maybe even have a trainer and work at it carefully. You can't just go in there and lift 50 pounds or bench press 250 pounds and say, hey, you know, now, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a bodybuilder. But that, but see, intellectually, that's what people want to do. And especially, uh, you know, if your job is to, you know, you know, give sermons every week, you don't really have time to do that. You know, I mean, I'm an academic. I've been paid for 50 years to study this stuff and teach this stuff. You know, and but the problem is I it's also a consumer issue because I think most of the people you're saying, what can they do? They don't really want to do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a form of intellectual laziness, uh, which you find in all of, among all pastors, I, I would say in many respects, I mean, both progressive and conservative evangelicals, like you just want the quick and dirty so you can be trendy and cool. You can't do that. I mean, it's a especially when you get into the issues of race, you know, because then you're what I was explaining, like my friend used the thing about you're whitesplaining. You're you're basically explaining something that you would have no business trying to explain. Um, And you know, the Choctaws have a word. I can't remember exactly what it is, but the translation of it is deep listening. And and by the way, race is not just about anybody who's not white. There's a lot of pushback right now about that. You know, race is an artificial category and it kind of shifts. There's a very good article article in Foreign Policy in this past uh, week uh, by an Asian American uh, who says that you know Asian, even the term Asian American is is somewhat loaded. It's a category imposed upon them. We don't want to be called Asian Americans. We don't want to be looked at for who we are. We don't want to be lumped into this broad category called people of color, which increasingly a lot of people of color are calling racist in itself, because it essentially says you've got two types of people, white and non-white. And of course, that's that's an American academic conceit that has been in some ways ingrained in the thinking of the population. It's actually as racist as racism seeks to overcome. And I'm not speaking as a white person on that. I'm here hearing that more and more from people in the, in the Latinx world, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, so we we think we still think we are the great white gods that can you know understand what racism is all about. And we've got to listen to real people in real congregations. We've got to live among them. We got to talk among them. You know, we might be shocked. You know, for example, that you know the largest the largest jump in vote the percentage of votes for Donald Trump in the last election uh, was not among white evangelicals who voted for him anyway it was among Latinos uh, particularly evangelical Latinos now why was that well there's issues there there may be more ethnic or cultural and they may be racist but we've got to be attuned to that we can't keep citing these these kind of corporate mantras uh, you know, um, you know, we can't just say, oh, it's about race. What do you mean by race? And how does it break down into the particular situation? You know, and if I have any plea, it's stop the stupidity. Read and listen. Yeah. Listen to those who seem to be speaking for. Let them speak. Don't speak for them without hearing them speak.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's fantastic. Uh, and, and and maybe. Um, uh one way, and this is this is probably a jump, uh, but maybe one way to um, get at how these layers have worked is, is maybe to, to have you talk a little bit about this um, upcoming conference uh, because it takes it, it has, there's another uh, theory, decolonial theory. And, and the reason I am thinking about it, I saw your post. I actually I actually printed off the article you just referenced uh, so I could go back and and uh, take a look at it. Uh, but but what I'm thinking is this, that since since trendiness is a uh, viewed as a virtue, uh, before anyone has a chance to, uh, as you put it, glom onto the next thing, to Create some sort of partisan divide, uh, and instead practice what you just described. Let's listen. This this idea of decolonial uh, or decolonial theory. Um, I've I've got some friends who have used it. I've got a small book that that uh, someone wrote called the um, Decolonization of the Gospel or something like that. I've got on my desk to read. It's a, it's a small piece. And I just wonder if, because of a
1: book that's edited by De La Torre,
0: I, I've got I've,
1: um, got, I've got, uh, I've got De La Torre's.
0: Say. Yeah, I've got De La Torre's two little books. Yeah, um,
1: he's a colleague
0: of mine, by the way. So oh,
1: okay, great, great. I love school of theology, and uh, yeah, I know him very well. And they're going to, they're this conference. They're going to be talking about that book, which is, it, it, it it's like
0: ten people and they're all you know it's, it's a great book yeah um, well well help help us a little bit because uh, and, and it seems to be that now where where we are everybody's already in their corners to such a degree that the idea that anyone's going to listen is just not happening there is a conference in denton texas coming up um, by a uh, uh, put on by a pastor who has been a pastor for 50 years and is, has made the incredible um, uh, declaration that uh, wokeness, which is a cover for talk about race theory and 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 just and social justice as a as a, a you know dominant category, is the most dangerous thing to have hit the church in yeah, his lifetime well, and. And so we, we I'm not even sure we can stop along the way and go back and pick up critical theory, critical race theory, since I, nobody paid attention to uh, post-structural thought. And, but decolonizing, a decolonial theory seems to me re- requiring us to listen to everyone. Is yes. that an oversimplification?
1: Well, yeah, but to understand basically where people are coming from and understand that all of us in some ways come from different places. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, another trendy term called positionality, what position you're coming from. Well, what decoloniality shows is, is that we come from multi, multi, m- many different positions simultaneously. Uh, and it's, it's about recognizing the whole speaker who we claim to be listening to. In in other words, the ethic is stop claiming you're speaking for someone and let them speak. Mm -hmm. Let them speak for themselves in their own way. You know, that's where it becomes, that's what radical relationality is. You know, it's not about just saying, okay, I, I, I feel your pain. And then before I'm going to engage in a discourse, which I picked up from some book that's going to explain your pain to you. You know, that that is what is insidious about this whole thing. We think we're being helpful when we're actually being hurtful. Um, Decoloniality is a term that my good friend, Walter Mignolo, uh, who is a um, professor, eminent professor at Duke University, uh, has written, and I've been a follower of his thought for years and actually some of my more recent books I cited a lot, but he was the one who developed the term. Um, he's from Argentina uh, he's actually uh, Italian of Italian descent but Italian immigrants um, you know he understood South America and so much of Latin America as being these kind of layers and hybrid complexities of people from different cultures different religious backgrounds Spanish colonialism the Catholic Church Spanish Catholicism uh, but also you know there's a there's a huge Uh, charismatic movement, then you have um, South American uh, evangelicalism, which has actually created its own form of the religious right in countries like Brazil with Bolsonaro and so forth. Then you've got the Indianismo movements in Ecuador and Peru and so forth, which is, you know, in some ways a reassertion of the kind of hidden uh, cultural, prevailing cultural a way of looking at things among, you know, uh, the descendants of the Incas, you know, uh, and so forth. So, I mean, to, to you know, we, we've got to read history, too. We, gotta listen. we also have to read history and understand, uh, you know, kind of all these, up the dominant narrative, and then, you know, you know, exaggerating, you know, no, critical race theory is not, you know, the most dangerous thing that's ever happened to the church. I'm sorry. It's just, that's just a way of getting people to hear some kind of stupidity uh you know but at the same time it's not harmless either be, particularly in the hands of people who don't use it properly now we want we want to we want to make sure we want to we, we've changed the rhetoric in this country from you know gun control to gun safety well why can't i mean in some words words and ideas are more dangerous than guns you know if used improperly. so mm-hmm. you know i think the movement maybe maybe not Thought control, heaven forbid, but responsible thought use of ideas and philosophers and thinkers and so forth, which, you know, we're 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 being more and more negligent about that. But that that's a whole story. Um, the the decoloniality simply means we've got to understand um, that what we call Christianity may be a um, what the political scientist, and political theorist, um, uh, what's his name, um, George Lakoff, uh, terms a deep frame. Uh, deep frames are almost an unconscious background way in which we structure knowledge and assumptions that we're not even aware of. We think it's real when, in fact, just a way by we, which we codify what we think is real. Um, and what decoloniality says, let's let's start to unlayer our deep frames, you know? We, we tend to look at, say, what indigenous peoples see the world and how they talk about everything from politics to race, even you know, the notion of sovereignty, through a lens which is, in a sense, opposed upon them by European civilization, which was medieval civilization, which claimed to be, quote, Christian, but actually it was a hybrid of Arab, uh, Germanic, uh, various kind of tribal influences, ancient imperial ideas that came from Greek which were transferred in Rome, you know, and of course Christianity begins with this itinerant rabbi in what was a um, colonized province of Rome, uh, known as Judea, uh, from the, uh, the back country of Judea, and nothing good ever happens, as it says in scripture in, <laughs> in, uh, in Galilee you know, all of a sudden, you know, the the teaching is this guy, of this guy named Jesus, you know, which basically incorporates so much of, you know, Jewish teaching, of rabbinic teaching, but, you know, he's got this kind of messianic presence and this following. And then this thing happens on Easter morning, which well, we call Easter morning, which changes the world. And all of a sudden it spreads out to a guy named Paul into the Roman empire. And that kind of incorporates, includes a lot of different, you know, sources and strands of ways of thinking different, what we might call uh, different epistemic strands. Just like a, a top, topographical map, you get, you know, one layer of super maybe hundreds of layers. And by the time it gets even to the 16th century, it's kind of unrecognizable in, in terms of its immediate or its initial, you know, kind of revelation. Uh, and we, so, I mean, this was one of my criticisms of the whole uh, Chicago statement, in the next Reformation, it said, this has nothing to do with the gospel, this has nothing to do with the Bible. You know, this is basically 19th century uh, Anglo-Scottish um, epistemology uh, that or, or are certain kind of philosophical way of looking at things that now you're confusing with what the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is all about and in other words it's idolatry well that's true that people don't see that of course no you know it's, it's my way it's my it's what I've heard in church well that's the problem you got to go back and do what we call genealogy of what you've heard in church like where do these ideas come from you know what, what do they really mean what do they mean in the context as opposed to what say the Greek word you know implies and, and so forth I mean, we we'll go endlessly around that I mean, fortunately, a lot of pastors, you know, that now know the original language of the Scripture are getting better and better at saying, "Okay, just what this word is meant in English." Even the word "gospel," which is an old English word, you know, doesn't necessarily have the connotation the flavor it had, you know, in uh, in the mouth of Jesus. You know, who spoke Arabic, by the way, didn't speak Greek, so um, as Aramaic, I say. Uh, so, I mean, it, it it takes work. It takes hard work. And it's, you know, and, you know, I hear this because I spend a lot of time in Europe and I work with uh, the, um, you know, e- the various evangelical groups in particularly in Central Europe and a lot of them are just kind of amazed about America. It's like, you know, we're always looking for the latest trendy person who's been able to kind of become what we call a social influencer and say, this is the way it is. And so, so we start talking like that, you know, until... Another influence comes along and says, "Oh well, that's all wrong, uh, and then we go with them you know i mean it's it's um, it's idolatry. it's idolatry pure and simple and we know from scripture how what God thinks of idolatry and how he ultimately deals with it, and I think God is going to deal with the American church you know
0: probably sooner than later hmm. wow well in the in the little bit of time we have left let's 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 uh use uh, um, a phrase, a, a description you use uh, early on. And I thought it was really helpful. So if we're talking about listening, we're encouraging, uh, if we're going to delve into it, Not we're going to- we need... Deep listening. Deep listening.
1: Okay. Um, my pastor friend who I referenced earlier in Ardmore, Oklahoma, he gave me a great definition in our conversation this morning. He said, basically, the way you can tell a fundamentalist is by their lack of humility. Mm-hmm. And I don't care, you know how woke you are. By the way, woke is just the latest fashionable term right. for political correctness. But I mean, there is a kind of caricatureness in that, which does reflect a lot of reality, you know. Um, it, but you know, wokeness is a kind of cartoon version of social justice. You know, I mean, the word justice applies probably occurs more time in the Bible than any other word except, say, God. Uh and you know, and even what is translated in English as righteousness is today, which is the same word that Plato uses in the Republic to talk about justice. Mm-hmm. So injustice, in some ways, all notions, notion of social justice is redundant. I've taught a I taught a course on that in December and I made that point. Mm-hmm. You know, but so justice is the key to the gospel. You know, when, when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. He's using decays. But what does he mean by that? He means your righteousness has to be, you know, a deeper righteousness than the kind of, you know, rules and protocols and kind of interpretation of what we would call popular Judaism or popular Christianity, including woke Judaism or woke Christianity. You're righteous, you shall not enter the kingdom, which means... Don't reject the word justice. It's all about justice. Go into what that really means from a God vision-centered point of view. Um, don't start just citing, you know, whatever uh, Joe Biden or AOC said. No, oh, it's justice. You know, i you know, all those horrible Republicans. I mean, I, I look at Twitter. And I just want to puke because I see all these ex-evangelicals now. You know, they see um, the justice is simply citing, you know, whatever the latest, you know, democratic policy mean is, we're, you know, we're the justice party. Well, no, you're not. You know, if you're condemning everybody else, then you're not, you're not listening to Jesus at all. Justice is about essentially right relationship between all people in the way God intended it. And that means overcoming partisan division. If you are a hyper-partisan, you are not doing justice. I don't, I don't care if you're on the right side of, of race and racism you're not doing justice. Man. Justice is of the heart. That's what Jesus taught. And, you know, both on the left and right need to be talking to each other. If you talk to each other, then you know, you're engaged in, the, in an idolatry of justice.
0: Yeah, and I think that gets to your phrase, radical re- relationality.
1: Yeah, well, that's what justice means. Justice is, yep. I mean, decaoside de- means it's about the right relationship with people. Mm -hmm. you know what is the great commandment You love the Lord your God with all your hat and your neighbor as yourself okay Mm -hmm. you love God you love your neighbor your relationship with him your relationship of forgiveness you know I don't care what they've done for them how many times Jesus? if you can't forgive and you're just a little you know smug about well you know I'm on the right side of history that's not justice or at least not it's not the Christian idea of justice that's an idolatry of justice and it goes to the same it's like well you know you know, Donald Trump was our is or was our savior, and that's what Christianity is all about. No, it's not. You know, it's not about politics at all. Yeah. Um, you know, the, there is no politics in the kingdom of God. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, there are political expressions, and they're up for interpretation uh, about what being saved means. Save being saved is not being uh, in in some ways defending the gospel nor does it mean being woke about the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, justice is, as Derrida says, and Derrida is a good Jew here, and and Caputo gets it right, justice is undeconstructible because it is about being in the immediate, direct, unmediated, historically powerful relationship to the divine, which, as Derrida is a good Jew, was, was... the unnamable divide, Yahweh, the name beyond the house. Yeah. You know, of course we have a name for as Christians, it's Jesus, okay? But that it's still about that's what justice is. Jesus is justice. But as I'm fond of saying, it's it's about just us, all of us together, listening to each other, deep listening to each other, uh, and trying to reconcile. You know, yes. if you're not willing to reconcile, you don't know a judgment.
0: Yes. And that's great, Carl. And uh, I hope that uh, folks have, have stayed with us and that uh, uh, you've found a lot of things to hold on to. But uh, as, as Carl mentioned uh, on more than one occasion, listening is really, really important for the day and time that we are in. And so, um, I'll post, Carl, I'll post, uh, and I would say, I would say, forgiving will uh, i forget. Yes. Yes. Forgiving. Yes. 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 I'll, uh, I'll put some links to uh, a few of Carl Carl's books that have been good. And then maybe a link to his, uh, Amazon authors page and some things like that. And you can uh, follow him on Twitter. I'll, I'll give you his, uh, handle to follow, but, uh, uh, Carl, this has been great. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you had the time and, and we got the, the time uh, virtually to kind of reconnect, and I appreciate it. Can I put in a plug for this conference on Decoloniality? I'd love you to. I'd love you to. You know more about it than I do. Go right ahead. Yes.
1: Well, I mean, we're getting huge signups. So I'm a little worried right now that, uh, you know, we might have too many people signed up because of the carrying capacity of the system but I don't think everybody will do one, but it's, it's, it's a at, You go to the website called the new polis, the new polis.com and you'll, you go into conferences and CFPs and you'll find the link to it. Uh, and it's going to be all the big names from all around the world. A lot of them it's we're going to have scholars from every continent except our Antarctica, of course um, you know, talking about decoloniality and the questions of race will come up in this as well um and it's uh it would be it would be an academic somewhat academic conference but you know pastors have you know academic training so it would be sure know, like that sure. Uh, and uh and uh, i'd also say if anybody wants to know if i kind of read the argument i've been making uh this sort of pushback against what i call the kind of neoliberal system in which Christianity is embedded. I'd I'd, I'd recommend my latest book, uh, which is more in social and political philosophy than theology, but it does have theology in it. Um, And it hasn't been available in an affordable edition. It's been a very expensive hardback, but the paperback edition will be available for $20 in a few weeks. It's with Edinburgh University Press and it's called Neoliberalism and Political Theology colon from Kant to Identity Politics, and that, that's kind of where I am right now intellectually, and um, you know, I always try to plug that book as well.
0: Sure, I'm looking forward to getting it. I'll put all those in the notes, and, and uh I encourage uh, all of you to pay attention and, and pick up some of those for yourselves, and I've already signed up for that conference, so you uh, it's next week we it's free i mean the i the idea to get some of that what we're getting free is crazy
1: yeah but and if you can't get in because we've hit the capacity it will be uh it be, will be um uh, what do you call a live stream as well so,
0: okay good good it good will be but do go ahead and
1: go ahead and sign up and we're going to notify people that it'll still be live streamed
0: that'll so, be great well, Carl, till the next time we get to do okay. this, uh, maybe after that, that your, your uh, book wh- that's coming out in a couple of weeks in paperback, I'm going to pick it up. Maybe we'll get together and talk about that one.
1: Okay, sounds great. All right, great All right. to see you, Todd. Good to see you,
0: Carl. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. As always, it's, it's a help if you share the podcast, subscribe in your favorite podcatcher, and then if you could leave a review, a four-star five-star review in iTunes, it, it helps us get found and continue the conversations that are helpful for those of us who are really interested in the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. Next up on the podcast is Bradley Mason, or if you follow him on Twitter, also a carpenter. You could say that this next episode is a, is a pre-episode, We really didn't get to talk about some of the things that uh, had intrigued me that I'd found along the way as as he's written uh, articles on his blog and on Front Porch, as well as his engagement with folks who uh, are uh, scrapping and grappling with some sociological analytical tools that are available and are we or aren't we turning them into bogeymen, as if to say these are the worst things that have Christianity has faced uh, in in folks' lifetimes? Those are claims, believe it or not. So we set up, hopefully, what will be a, a future series, uh, uh, a short series of podcasts with uh, uh, Bradley, in which uh, we kind of get his heart, where he is, what 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 uh, the state of conversation is like, and let me just say. It's difficult out there, so you'll, you'll not want to miss it. And so, until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastoral theologian Peace.